Okay, well, hey, uh, glad to have you guys out here tonight. Thanks for coming out. I know we have, uh, what, Frida's down in Flor uh, Florida, or actually Alabama, yes, Gulf Shores. And uh, Penny went up to Columbia because uh, Shay had a wreck and messed up his hand. And uh, so that's the deal there. And a few other people are out, so uh, glad you guys came tonight. <laughs> Help make the Bible yeah, study. Few people out. Well, you beat everybody. <laughs> I left. I was going to stop and get something to eat. And I thought, nah, I'd be pushing it pretty close. You had plenty of time. But the way that we start. <laughs> okay. So I guess I better get going here on it. We, we uh, see, we're right in the middle of uh, Zechariah, and um, we're in chapter 10, trying to figure out how to fit this in that it'll make sense to somebody sitting here for the first time. And I think of the question is has God, has God cast off his people Israel? And that's really what Zechariah kind of deals with, what we've been looking at. And of course, um, in Romans chapter 9, it gives us the answer too in the New Testament because that would be the question that Paul would get. Is God done with, with Israel? Um, there are a lot of people today that would say, yes, he is. And those necessarily wouldn't be people that would even be in the church that would say... Uh, that uh, there really is no Israel. They don't want to recognize them and after they've been a state for, uh, what, uh, 70 years almost, something like that now. Um, but in, in Romans chapter uh, 11, there's a question. In verse 1, I say then, God has not rejected His people, has He? May it never be, for I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin, God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew. Or do you not know what the Scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel, Lord, they have killed Your prophets, they have torn down Your altars, and I alone am left, and they are seeking My life. But what is the divine response to Him? I have kept for Myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. What he's saying there is there is a remnant that he has within the nation of Israel. And even all the way up through the Old Testament time period, after Christ has been resurrected and ascended to heaven, yet Paul, who is out there ministering, uh, and this one was sent to the uh, Romans, and even at that time, that's what he says, and he takes it all the way up to the time that Christ comes back, and he elaborates that on three chapters, Romans 9, 10, and 11. And somebody say, well, the church is now Israel. The only thing is here that Paul makes it very clear that he's talking about an Israelite descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. So it does have to do with the bloodline, not the church. And if it is the church, it totally distorts everything that's involved in 9, 10, and 11 and where it talks about the wild olive tree and, and uh, that uh, uh, scenario. And by the time you get to the end of 11, he says, he explains it. He says in verse 25, For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. And there he talks about Zion, Jacob. Uh, and verse 28 says, from the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies. If he's talking about the church being Israel, you've got a problem there in 28 because it says they, which is Israel. It's, if, if you just replant and say, okay, everything in there about the Bible that's about uh, Israel is now the church, what says the church is now the enemy of the church? <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. But he says, or for your sake, but from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers and the promise that was made. And, uh, of course, he ends it all with, 
Oh, the depth of the riches, both the wisdom and knowledge of God, and how searchable, unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable His ways. And closes out that great chapter 11 there. So, with all that said, you know, and, and of course in the political realm today, there are most nations do not want to identify with Israel. And our, the last president we had, Obama, did not want to identify with Israel. Our present president does identify with Israel and even uh, heartily went along with them whenever they wanted to make Jerusalem a capital. And so they play a huge part in Scripture and, of course, in the political realm, but uh, we see biblically uh, how God deals with them. He's still dealing in the fulfillment of the promises that were made to Israel. Uh, many people, most of the people in Israel today are not Christians, they're not believers in Christ, so therefore they're lost. But... Um, God has a plan still for that nation, and that's what is happening in Zechariah. I've challenged so many friends down through the years who do not want to identify Israel. I'm talking about people who are Christians that says that God is done with Israel, and I, you know, they're, they're friends, people I get along with and I, I love, but at the same time, I have to differ with them and say, what do you do with this passage? What do you do with Zechariah? And to be honest with you, I never get an answer. And I'll read a passage to them uh, showing what God is going to do right to the very end of Zechariah. And uh, they can't really answer it and other than just saying, well, that's a spiritual uh, aspect. That's a spiritual Israel. It's not really a nation. It's not really the people. Um, another one that I haven't got into Zechariah yet, and I'll do one more here in uh, Jeremiah chapter 31. It's a covenant that God made with Israel and of course uh, ultimately you know, all of His people Jews and Gentiles. But in Jeremiah 31 31 it says, Behold, days are coming declares the Lord when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. The northern tribes and the southern tribes. Uh, I've never heard the church being called Judah so you know, but they say, well, uh, replacement theology says that we are uh, we are we are Israel now. But there, uh, do they ever call themselves Jacob? In other names that they have, anyway, verse thirty-two. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers, and that day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke. And of course, you think of the uh, the Mosaic law, and they broke. Uh, of course, the law does exist for that fact. It shows that man is 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 sinful. They do break his law. Uh, verse 33, But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and on their heart. I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Well, in a sense, isn't that us? Well, yes, it is. That's This is called the new covenant. If you're a believer, you're in the new covenant, and we're you know he puts the law within our hearts, but he's also talking. He starts off with uh, this section dealing with Judah and Israel, the house of Judah and Israel, and it's for all people. But he points out, I haven't forgotten my promises. So it moves on. He says in verse 34, they will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. There's the Lord. For I'll forgive their iniquity and their sin, I'll remember no more. So there's forgiveness of sins. And he backs it up and says this. Thus says the Lord, This is the Lord who gives the sun for light by day, the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night. This is the Creator God, right? Who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is His name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, if this fixed order of the moon, the stars, all of that, what He's done in His creation... He says, if this departs, if it just stops, then the offspring of Israel also will cease. Then it'll end. Right? Then it's all over because I'm not holding it together. There has been a major problem. There's, and I didn't mean anything that I said here. He says, if it stops, we know this is what will happen. From being a nation before me forever. He says, if this fixed order departs, then the offspring of Israel, Israel... Not the church, the Israel, the people, 
from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured in the foundations of the earth, searched out below, then I will also cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. And uh, then he talks about the city being rebuilt and he mentions physical places, the tower of Hananel to the corner gate, says in 38, a measuring line, you know, to the hill of Garib and turn to Goa. Uh, he mentions the brook Kidron to the horse gate. That's literal. This is not a, just a spiritual thing, but he's talking about restoration. This is where it gets into now where a Zechariah passage is at. And that's really the promise that he has been making all along as he gets up to chapter 10. So I went to those two sections, Romans 9 and our Jeremiah 31. And you get that covenant there. And it's not only about a physical deliverance for Israel and and Christ is going to come back riding on a white horse, all the armies of heaven following Him. He's going to slaughter all the armies of the world who are against Him, who are ungodly. He will deliver Israel and give Israel the kingdom. Uh, But in addition to that, there will be a salvation to those Israelites or the Jewish people that are living at that time. And we will see that when we get to chapter 12 and uh, 13 in Zechariah. So this is kind of setting it all up for that. So when Israel is saved, what happens? What is involved in all this this redemption, this deliverance? That's the theme of this chapter 10 here. And so got it broken down. I think we have about seven points there. And uh, I'll just kind of read one verse at a time. Ask rain from the Lord at the time of the spring rain, the Lord who makes the storm clouds, and He'll give them showers of rain, vegetation in the field to each man. So he starts off with a physical blessing. It's called rain. We've been blessed all winter long with a lot of moisture. And we will continue to be more and more blessed probably as the winter goes on in different kind of formats. Yeah, just so we don't go end up on our knees when we don't want to. <laughs> That's right. Or our bottoms. Very true. Well, um, if we backed up one verse from chapter 10 and going to the very last verse of Zechariah 9.17, it says, For what comeliness and beauty will be theirs? He says this. Here's a promise. Grain will make the young men flourish in the new wine, the virgins. He's talking about there's going to be grain. There's going to be blessings. Uh, uh, a great harvest. Grains are going to flourish. The grapes are going to flourish. Uh, it's it, you know I mean this is going to be a, a, a super blessing that God is going to give, and of course if you lived in the um, uh, Middle East, they get rain in the spring, and then they kind of do what happened to us last year. You get rain and it cuts off, and then you don't get any rain for a long time throughout the summertime, and then later on in the fall, they get another, uh, I guess you could say, a set of rain. That actually is called the early rain, and then there's the latter rain that's in the spring, you know, to the to the Jews. That's the, the way they would thought of it. You would think it would be the other way around. Early rain would be in the spring, and the latter rain would be in the fall, but of course you've got to remember their seasons kind of work differently than their calendar does. So when it talks about the latter rain, we're talking that this is what the kind of rain that we're talking about, the spring rain. Ask rain from the Lord at the time of the spring rain. Somebody could say, now, if you're interpreting this, that one, if you don't believe in Israel, and God is done with them, then this would all have to be spiritual. Or you could say, well, this is for this time right now, of Zechariah's time. But as we look at it, if you look at the context of this chapter, it's not anything that's been done historically. It's something that's looking into the future. And and you're considered blessed if God gives you rain and uh, enough rain for your crops, uh, not necessarily floods, uh, but at the same time, I guess that could be an over-blessing. But, uh, um, it's the Lord who makes the storms and the clouds. He's the one that gives us what we need. I'm glad we're not in control of it. But at any rate, he's already said the, the grain and such. So it's going to be a time when the people will have 
a need for uh, grain and uh, the, the new wine, the, the, the fruits, everything that they had, and he will certainly bless them in their harvest. Well, they're basically a desert area for the most part in Israel. There are certain parts of Israel that is really green, and today in a lot of areas, uh, some of that uh, has come to life in Israel where they have uh, green areas, which they didn't have for many, many years, and the Turks had come in there and flooded out where what is known as was known as Palestine, and uh, they just made a mess of that. It was not a livable place until um, the Jews made it their homeland. Uh, were allowed to go back in there and declare it a state, and uh, they've kind of uh, transversed what all had happened in that desert area. If you turn to Isaiah chapter 35, you get a great favorite of many people because it's dealing with the same kind of thought in a desert and getting the right book instead of Jeremiah I go to 35 of Isaiah and I might find where I'm heading for uh, but uh, Israel of course the Middle East all of that area is mainly mainly desert and he says 35.1 the wilderness and the desert will be glad and the Arabah will rejoice and blossom like the crocus it will blossom profusely and rejoice with rejoicing and shout of joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord. The majesty of our God. It gives them more encouragement. And you know, the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. They will be given. Uh, they'll be open and unstopped. And the lame will leap like a deer. Um, you look in verse 7, the scorched land will become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water, and the haunt of jackals, its resting place, grass becomes reeds and rushes. So there we're talking about a time, and I looked at this as the millennial kingdom. Christ comes back, sets everything up, and you, you know, in Jerusalem, Jerusalem is, is lifted up uh, where the temple's going to be all along that area and, and then all of Israel will become instead of the desert that it is will becoming uh, a place for uh, blossoming and he mentioned uh, Lebanon and Carmel, Mount Carmel and the Valley of Sharon it's going to look like Carmel Mount Carmel is uh, in all of these places uh, the you think the Valley of Sharon. It's the coastal valley there. It, it's green. It's beautiful in that area. It's, all of Israel is going to be like that because real rain is going to happen. Real rain water. And, of course, people can take this spiritually, and there's no doubt there is there's spirituality involved in this, a spiritual rain where God blesses us. We have... We were deserts ourselves before, before Christ came in and changed us. But it means... The other aspect here that there's going to be a physical aspect of this. This is the uh, you, you have to have this latter rain, the spring rain in March and April. It's indispensable. If they don't get it at that time, they don't get it throughout the whole summer. Totally desert. You've heard of it never rains in Southern California. That's a lot like the uh, land of Israel, San Diego. Tony, you spent time there. If you were there in the summertime, you probably never really ever saw it rain. If you did, it was considered to be very unusual, right? So Israel is a lot like that as far as the arid desert is. So they have to have it in March or April. They don't get it at all. Crops will not grow, and of course, it's, that's a bad year. So that's the latter rain. That's the God, God's blessing there. Uh, I think also, you know, of course, the spiritual rain is not to be eliminated there. Um, Hosea chapter 6, I think it is. Here you have uh, 
what God what God does to people, how gracious He is. Uh, Come, let us return to the Lord. For He has torn us, but He will heal us. He has wounded us, but He will bandage us. He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day that we may live before Him. So let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going forth is as certain as the dawn. And He'll come to us like the rain, like the spring rain watering the earth. And so there is the spiritual salvation of them, isn't it? So we can put in that spiritual meaning like a rain is, you know, after what, after a dry time, like a spring rain or this latter rain watering the earth. And so it is both. Uh, we can definitely put that there. So I don't want to eliminate everything, but that, that helps to see that Zechariah is speaking of a time where the land that they live will be totally blessed and they'll have vegetation uh, to each person. So that's rain in verse 1. Now there's another promise, and it's uh, a recompense or a judgment to uh, people who have not had a shepherd. And this is judgment to the false shepherds. It's a judgment to the people uh, because they obeyed idolatry. Uh, They're in a dilemma. Israel was in a dilemma. They have not been into idolatry, as we have said before, since... um, their captivity to Babylon in something like 600 B.C. Uh, as a nation, they you haven't seen them obey idols. They haven't been in that in that sense. But there was a time that they worshipped idols, that they followed diviners, the the occult, the fortune tellers, the witchcraft, soothsayers, all of that. That's the kind of idolatry they had gotten involved in, and their past experiences was a disaster. And that's one of the biggest reasons why God judged them. He judged the ten tribes up north and then later the two tribes of south, Judah. Uh, the word there uh, for teraphim in verse 2, do you guys have teraphim in chapter 10, verse 2? He might have idols. Teraphim, it, it, it means idols in the, in the Hebrew. It's a real interesting word without going into really to labor it. It's dealing with household gods. We're talking real idols. They not only went to the temples and to worship, but they had their self-kind of styled idols that they would bring into their households, and they would actually worship them. And really, is when you have something like that, you have like demons impersonating the gods through these household idols, and the demons would hold them to this false system they'd got involved with. And you can go through further. Uh, Chapters, you go into Genesis or in 1 Samuel 15, 2 Kings 23, you'll see the idolatry that Israel had been involved with. Um, not only speaking of past history, he's talking in the future, Israel's going to get involved in this demonic activity. Um, say in verse 2. The people wander like sheep. They uh, had false shepherds, false leaders, uh, false teachers. Uh, the Antichrist is going to be a false teacher. And Second Thessalonians, we studied in that book, and Second uh, Thessalonians chapter two, for instance, talks about the idolatry they'll be involved with. Uh, verse nine. When he's talking about the Antichrist here, that is the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they'll believe what is false in order that all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. So there's a future tense in this, not only people of Israel, but also uh, people all throughout all the world. Um, but if you're speaking of Israel, this is what happened. They didn't have shepherds. They didn't have good shepherds. They were false. They were bad leaders. And he says at the end of verse 2, they're afflicted because there is no shepherd. And then he says in verse 3, My anger is kindled against the shepherds, the false shepherds, 
I'll punish the male goats. What's the male goats? <laughs> uh, see, in Matthew, when Jesus comes back, he will separate the sheep from the goats. This male goat or he he goat is is dealing with these are considered to be uh, the leaders the the chiefs it refers to those the the false shepherds as he would call them the male goats I'll punish them for the Lord of Hosts has visited his flock the house of Judah and will make them like his majestic horse in battle so now what he says is that whenever I come back. I will deliver them from the false shepherds. I will punish them. I will come back to my flock. And chapter 12, verse 9 says, Zechariah. And when he talks about uh, judging the nations and the armies and such, and in that day I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And that he will do, and he'll deliver his own people. And uh, so this is a divine recompense, a judgment. He'll judge all the oppressors. All oppressors uh, will be thrown out. Uh, it says in verse, at the end of verse 4, from them every ruler, all of them together, they will be uh, judged, all the oppressors of Israel. So there he deals with the punishment of the, the shepherds and the leaders that they had. Now we get into verse 4. And this is the Messiah. This is the uh, kingpin verse of all of this chapter. As a matter of fact, it's probably one of the best descriptions of the Messiah. Watch the, the details on this. It's, he's saying, okay, here's what's going to happen. The Messiah is going to come. Zechariah has been presenting that all the way through, right? From them will come the cornerstone. From, who's them? The nation of Israel. From Israel, Jesus was Jewish, right? By the way, in the former chapter, chapter 9, we had a verse that dealt with coming into Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. In verse 9, remember that? 9 9, he's just and thou the salvation, humble, mounted on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. He did that at, at the. Um, as he came into Jerusalem his last week. Uh, we've also seen in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, that he was going to be born not only in Israel, but a town is named. Bethlehem, right? So, And he's from the tribe of Judah. We've seen all of these prophecies throughout the, the, the prophetic sections. You know, comes up to Zechariah and he gives more to add to what's been done. There's going to be a Messiah. So he identifies him here. So this is really rich. It's loaded here. What is he first of all? From them will come the cornerstone. Um, You have a cornerstone. You have what would be a stone that would hold up the walls. It's a supporting stone. It's for stability. Uh, Buildings had to have that for safety and stability. Everything depends on that foundation of that building, right? And then the cornerstone is there. When God sets up the Messiah as the cornerstone, the foundation is going to stand sure. And of course, that was a pretty big building point at that time, I would say. And so, I think there's a lot of insight here as he points that out. This is not the first time that's been said. Because Isaiah said it like uh, probably what, 250, 300 years before this, in Isaiah 28, talks about a cornerstone. Isaiah is a prophetic, messianic book saying the Messiah is going to come. He will deliver His people. It will be the Messiah. That's, that's what they all look to. And Isaiah 28, verse 16 says, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I'm laying in Zion, or Jerusalem, a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. So the Messiah is a cornerstone. That's a key passage, isn't it? All throughout the Old Testament, one prophecy after another, uh, sticking together. uh, Different authors. How many different authors do we have? Over 40 uh, over the space of 
what, 1,500 years? And uh, so here you go. The cornerstone is well known. If you go, uh, go to Ephesians 2, verse 20, Paul picks up on that prof- prophecy passage and he says, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing to the holy temple in the Lord. So when you get the New Testament showing how the fulfillment is in the Old Testament with those prophecies, I think it's rather remarkable. So He's the cornerstone. And so that's how Zechariah identifies Him here in this great chapter 10 that we're dealing with. If you were if you were in Zechariah's time, you're thinking about what Zechariah is doing, but it's hard to put together. You know, they don't see it the way that we see it as we look back on it. But this would be something uh, with some of the verses and the thoughts that would be later put together. And who uh, who the Messiah is? What's the next one here? Well, from the uh, from them the tent peg. So he's a cornerstone. He's a tent peg. Don't usually hear that too often. Jesus Christ is a tent peg. It doesn't sound too. But here it is in Zechariah. It doesn't sound too firm. But it is. It is. Uh, there's two different ways that they would think of a tent peg. I think we can relate to it. You have a tent. A lot of time, oh, whenever they'd make their tents, of course they were tent dwellers. A lot of the people of Israel basically were. You think of Abraham and they're on out until uh, they later settle down in the nation of Israel. Uh, there you have you have this rope and it leads out from the extremity of the tent, you know, all the way to the uh, all the way to where you drive a stake into the ground. Of course, you'd have those all around the tent out there, and of course we're familiar with that. Um, that's plays a key role. I think you know that's a foundation. There. Even more so, there is the tent nail. It says a tent peg, and it's probably what he's referring to even more so. That they would drive a middle post. Uh, inside that tent, and they would drive that in there. And of course, that was that's supporting. That was a center, of it, right? Yeah, yeah. It's like having you know, a, like in a house, there are certain parts that you know you don't want to. Uh, you, you might have a post there. Well, everybody wants to check it out first. This might be load bearing. You know, better check that out. Well, that was a load bearing post right there in the middle of the tent. And into it was driven a big nail in which the valuable ornaments of the house were hung. Certain things that really showed what that family was about. You know, it was a key element. You know, of course, you have the big post there that plays a key role. And this is the nail that holds uh, to hold the tent of Israel together. Is really what he's saying there. This is the Messiah that's going to hold Israel together. What God is really going to do is that God is going to make Christ the nail in the midst of the kingdom. He is the the center point, and on that, all the glory of the Lord is displayed. Uh, that's what the kingdom hangs. You know, the glory of the kingdom hangs there. Uh, Zechariah six, just to back up a couple of chapters, verse thirteen. That's the only where ladies uh, could hang a picture was on that pole. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> no yeah. They, such they would do. Spot, right? But he's in the midst of them. Zechariah six thirteen. Yet it is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he who will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. His throne, right in the midst of. Him. Thus he will be a priest on his throne. There's a king and a priest. Thus he will be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace will be between the two offices, the king and the priest. That's the only person in Israel that's ever been allowed to be a king and a priest. It is the Messiah Himself. You know, the one of the uh, biggest, uh, I think, apologetics for uh, Christ and the Bible is prophecy. Because if it's prophecy that has already come true, you go, yeah, right there. History, history proves it right here. Uh, this is what was said, and it proved out to be. There are a lot of prophecies that are yet to be fulfilled. But we can count on it because all the other prophecies have always been fulfilled. And so here we have one that, 
you know, he's in the midst of them. He's the, the tent peg. He's the cornerstone. From them, he's the bow of battle. Um, if you were to look back in Zechariah 9, 13. For I will bend Judah as my bow. I'll fill the bow with Ephraim. There's a northern and the... the Southern and the northern tribes, and I'll stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece. We talked about that last week. In history, there's only been one time when Israel defeated Greece. There was the Babylonian Empire, the Persian, Medo Persian Empire, then the Greek Empire. Alexander the Great did all of his conquering, then it was divided up, and then in the Maccabean period, that was the intertestamental time, uh, 330 B.C. for you know 100 uh, years or so, 150. Anyway, uh, Israel actually defeated Greece historically. That you know we can go back there and see the annals and read uh, history on that. But that was prophesied by Zechariah, right? That we just read it right there in Zechariah 9:13. Um, he, uh, you know, in the sense that. Uh, they beat Greece. I'll make it like a war of sword. But there's an ultimate uh, battle to that, and it's whenever Christ comes back, He's the conqueror. Uh, he is the battle bow Himself. He's the conqueror. There's no equal to Him. He will destroy the enemy. I think to the people who are building the walls, who are building the temple, at this time in Zechariah, and Zechariah is telling him, there's a Messiah who's coming. He's going to be the cornerstone of you all. They're building a temple, right? They know about cornerstones. Uh, he'll be the tent peg. You live in tents right now. He's the tent peg. He's going to be the bow of battle. He is going to be the warrior, the conqueror of all. And he, what he's saying, actually in the Hebrew to them, this is a great promise. All the oppressors will be put out together, as we read that next, uh, next phrase, from them, every ruler, all of them together, as he will put, put them out and... Uh, by verse 5, uh, we run into restoration. Oh, by the way, look at Revelation 19.11. This is what, what is actually all that he's prophesying about. Christ comes back. I saw heaven open. Behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. That is Armageddon. That's the second coming of Christ. He will judge the enemies and He will save His people, Israel. And we will be with Him when He comes back. Right? So, there's three points. What have we gotten so far? Reign, recompense, the Messiah. The next one's restoration. Verse 5 and 6. They will be as mighty men. Now this is talking about his people that he comes back with, treading down the enemy in the mire of the streets in battle. And they will fight, for the Lord will be with them. And the riders on horses will be put to shame. So they have the horses. They have the power. The enemy does. But he says, you're going to put them down. I will strengthen the house of Judah. I will save the house of Joseph. Is this the church? Well, it's the Israelite people. House of Judah. House of Joseph. House of Judah. Two southern tribes. House of Joseph. Northern tribes. It's Israel being able to come back together again. It puts them as one. Because I've had compassion on them. And they will be as though I had not rejected them. Now that's interesting. Verse 6 here says... I will bring them back together. I will give them power. Uh, literally, they're going to be transformed in the power of God to be able to defeat them, to trample the enemies. He, they're going to be a part of this battle here. He says, because I had compassion on them. And they will be as though I had not rejected them. Had he rejected them? He did for a while. In Romans 11, we said we, we showed that. It's almost like for a little time, for a season, for quite a few hundred years now. You know, he's like he's gone to the Gentiles. There will be the time of the Gentiles when it comes to the end. And then he will come back for his nation, his people, convert them. They will have this kind of power and 
they will be restored. He's going to restore the whole nation, north and south, one nation, one destiny. That is quite a promise as he blesses Judah and Ephraim or the house of Joseph, you may. That's what he says here. I am their Lord, their God, and I will answer them. And the next verse is dealing with rejoicing. This is the fifth one. Ephraim, or he's still talking about Israel, will be like a mighty man, and their heart will be glad as if from wine. Indeed, their children will see it and be glad. Their heart will rejoice in the Lord. Now you have rejoicing as a result of all this. I think it's it's kind of interesting here. They're going to get happy like they just had a little bit too much to drink. <laughs> That's what he uses here. Uh, and their heart will be glad as if from wine. It, it, there's there's a rejoicing. It's not sin. There's going to be drunkenness here, you know, in a negative sense, but as if it, they're, they're really relieved. happy. They're the joy. They're relieved from all anxiety. Yeah. 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 And the joy here is intense. It's you know it's just like yeah okay they it looks like they've had a little bit too much to drink, or in the the uh, when the church was born in Acts two you know and the, uh, the believers were you know speaking in, in tongues that could be understood as other nations could understand them, but you know to the Israelites are saying uh, yeah they've had too much wine you know this early of a morning you know they're, they're drunk that's what they you know are saying but there was. Uh, actual rejoicing going on there but the children are going to see this the joy is intense here they're going to be chiming in everybody's going to be happy and rejoicing in the Lord because they won the battle Christ has come back you know and he's summing all this up here in this 10th chapter he gives a lot more detail as we go on in other further chapters but boy this is quite a blessing for them to hear because They've had years and years where they were 70 years of captivity, then years when they come back to the nation and nothing's going very good and they get attacked by enemies and they need an encouragement. That's what Zechariah does. The whole book of Zechariah, he's saying this is what's going to happen. He he tells them that they're going to build a temple, they'll build the wall, and everything's everything's all finished. Uh, But there's more to it. It's more than this. And that's what he's really saying here in chapter 10. Sixth one here is that he's going to regather them. This is interesting. And this shows you that this is definitely in the future. I will whistle for them to gather them together. For I have redeemed them. And they will be as numerous as they were before. When I scatter them among the peoples... They will remember me in far countries. Israel was Israel, and for the longest time, that's where they all lived, in one country. Later on, there was a diaspora where a lot of them were scattered, um, even before 70 A.D. 70 A.D., I mean, a lot of them were just killed. But then they started, but there was already a diaspora, to the seed scattering all throughout. And uh, since then, there have been Jewish people all over Europe. They'd move from one country to another to another. They would get kicked out, persecuted, martyred, or killed, and what have you. And, of course, a lot of them wound up over here in the States where we've had a lot of Jews. Um, the thing is that they are actually a nation. In 1948, they went back there. Uh, a lot of people gathered there. That was like a calling. That was pretty interesting. They weren't a state, and all of a sudden, they had had people kind of going in there since the 1800s. But now, all of a sudden, it was strong enough to, to be a state. God, I think, was calling them then to come there, but there's going to be a final gathering where He's going to gather them from north, south, east, west, all from the different nations. Many of them from the United States right here. And a lot of them are going back there, but... When he says in 9, when I scatter them among the peoples, they will remember me in far countries. They with their children will live and come back. I think it's exciting. We've seen a lot of that in our own time that we lived in. Are there enough of them that are still Jewish? This is by race, not by belief system. Yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing that for the most part, 
of course, some Jews have intermingled, but for the most part, they have not. Some people say, well, yeah, you can't have a Jew anymore because they've all intermingled. There's no such thing as a Jewish person because they just, they want, the thing is, God has had his remnant. And if he wants to keep his people, he can, and, and he has, and, and uh, he, he continues, and will do that all the way through uh, you know, the, the kingdom. And uh, People are going to come from everywhere, and they're going to remember uh, who he is, and he redeems them. And he brings out some uh, people that were from the past that always caused them trouble. This is interesting. I will bring them back from the land of Egypt. Of course, he's done that once. But there are and will be uh, people living in Egypt. Gather them from Assyria. And Assyria would be further east and north there. And of course, that would be in what we know as uh, Iraq, Iran. Uh, in that whole area, and even even from there, but I'll bring them into the land of Gilead and Lebanon. Of course, Lebanon, you know, it, it's its own nation. Be considered a, an Arab uh, nation and Muslim now, but until no room can be found for them, Lebanon is uh, was always known for its trees. The wood that came from there was. Uh, they brought to build a temple. Um, it's kind of fascinating there. But by the way, I like in verse eight. I forgot to tell you about that. For I will whistle for them to gather them together. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> Can somebody do one of the? Yeah. yeah a loud one. I can never do. It. That's about as good as I get. <laughs> yeah. 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 Watch your trigger come. <laughs> That's kind of, yeah, it's kind of yeah. an interesting phrasing there. I will whistle for them like you used to do when you were out playing and mom whistled for supper. Yeah, you knew to right. come get back home, right? Right. Home. So, you know, he mentions Egypt. He mentions Assyria. Were they enemies of Israel? Oh, yeah. Uh, all those neighboring nations. He says, I'll pass through the sea. They will pass through the sea of distress. Of course, you could think of originally, you know, the Red Sea and the Jordan River. They crossed over. And, but he says, any kind of obstacle that's there, they'll be removed. And he will strike the waves and the sea so that all the depths of the Nile will dry up. They'll cross over. And the pride of Assyria will be brought down. And the scepter of Egypt will depart. No more obstacles from the powerful nations that they always had to battle against. And then in verse 12, and I, and this is renovation there. You see the regathering? The belligerent nations, they will be able to uh, come from and get out of as they go back. I will strengthen them in the Lord, and His name they will walk, declares the Lord. They will be renovated. This is salvation here, a spiritual revival. And they have the strength of the Lord, and in His name they will walk, declares the Lord. Walk physically, walk spiritually. So there's uh, seven promises, blessings of uh, this Messiah, of the Redeemer. Anyway, I think it's a great promise to people who seem like they were forlorn and cast away and people would say, well, what about Israel? And God already said it. He said it throughout all through the, the covenants, the prophecies, and he, said it, he says it in the New Testament. This is what God's going to do at the very end, whether it be physical, also spiritual. And that's the kind of God we have that will tell us beforehand and not make it so kind of lame that you go, well, it's it's a spiritual meaning of what happens to me whenever I come to Christ. What about the people, though? And he answers it. Well, I think that's why they spiritualize it is because the, cause the Jews are so scattered now, it's hard to see. You, you just... Really, how can people from be so scattered away from their nation actually all come back? That seems it's a spiritual matter, though, and that's what they don't realize. It is a physical thing yep. that's taking place, but it does become a spiritual matter. So the Lord should draw people back to where that's he wants right. them to be. And He physically did that within their lifetime as He is prophesying because everything did come together. And He did, and he did say that that's what will happen, and a few short years later, it did happen. If it happened then, and it happened with the Medan Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, the Roman Empire, as God prophesied, told them what would happen. They, if He did that, 
then he can certainly do this promise that he's done for this nation and these people. And that what does that mean to us then? If he, can, if he says that he's going to bring his people and he's going to put a new heart into us, if we trust in him, then this is what we have for our future too. And we become one with this the the olive tree. That's where the wild olive tree put in it. It's called people. Yeah. So Old and New Testament, they meet together, and it uh, I think it's very, very fascinating. Thank you guys for coming out. I appreciate that. Good, study. good good to see you. It's great to be able to be in God's Word. And Boy, prophecy is amazing. It proves the Word. Yeah. Next time some of those people say that... Uh, just remind them of the Six Day War and tell them to go read about it. Yeah. What happened in that Six Day War, Dave? Unbelievable. <laughs> the one thing that sticks in my mind is where three guys stopped a whole platoon with three tanks of Egyptians. Mm-hmm. And the Egyptians don't know why they surrendered. Supernatural. Yeah, with all the power three, that they three had. Three Israeli soldiers and there was three tanks and 20-some men, mm-hmm. and they laid down their guns mm-hmm. and surrendered. Yeah. Isn't that incredible? And, and there's story after story mm-hmm. that happened. How about the, t- they had two Piper Cubs for the Air Force back at that mm-hmm. time, yeah. and there were literally thousands of Arabs that were camped there in Israel to just you know blow you know the, the whole area away. And those two Piper Cubs, they threw out what was equivalent to uh, Malkoff, what is it? Mal- Mal- cocktails. cocktails. As they, and they thought they were being bombed, and they start running and getting out of, you know, they were, thought they were being bombarded. Mm-hmm. I guess they were. But, of course, they, they wound up killing each other. They evacuated the area. Uh, just amazing stories. But this happened in our lifetime. Total confusion. Well, King Hussein, remember, that was Jordan. Mm-hmm. That was the country of Jordan. Mm-hmm. And King Hussein could not figure out what happened to his army. <laughs> Beautiful. It's called the supernatural appearance of the Lord's hand. That was in... 1967. 67. The Six-Day War. Uh, amazing. And they were outnumbered 33 to 1 or something. They had no chance. And when they first got to the Wailing Wall, they stopped and prayed. There are bullets flying all around them and nobody got hit. That's a hand of the Lord. It really is. That's right. Those stories are incredible. And they're true. These are not made up. Why are they there? Why are they still there today? They're they're still outnumbered. Why are they there? So we can either come alongside on them and at least you know, back them up as a nation. But once a nation turns their back on them, they all... Uh, well, then we're hurting because Obama and Clinton both turn our turn their backs on. Mm-hmm. That's what I was glad to see. It's great to see that Trump stands for the he nation of Israel. He knew that. He I was glad to see that. Yeah. Trump a Jew? No, no, no. I know Don Jr. is. Uh, no, his daughter. His daughter became one. A Jew and she converted. Yeah, yeah she became yeah. one. Right. Trump doesn't so, say. I don't know what. Trump but the reason that he is is I I think is there have there have been uh, quite a few men that have surrounded him who the are who are actually Christians and mm-hmm. they would believe what we have just discussed well, here tonight. Prophecy has to say. Yeah. Very much so. He's Very listening much. to him a lot on some of the. A lot, yeah. a lot of good counsel has come from him, mm-hmm. and he's changed a lot of uh, the president's. Thoughts. I had one individual tell me that Trump, Trump is, was put there by God. Mm-hmm. That's the only reason he won. Definitely. Well, we were just looking at uh, Alexander the Great.